0: glad you're here. Uh, Go ahead and, and, uh, yeah, they make me come. Uh, Go ahead and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. I'm glad I'm here too. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad that my church here lets me teach the Bible every Sunday. That's a cool thing. I really like that. Finest features. Um, As you know, if you've been... uh, attending for the last few weeks at least, we're in a difficult part of scripture. And and by that I mean it's, it's in that really we weren't invited to. Um, the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. We don't know what they said. Paul is responding, and we know what he said, but he's answering questions that we didn't ask and that we don't know. So it can be a, a difficult section for a number of reasons, and I, I think you'll agree with me as we read the text. I'm going to be uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10 through verse 24, and as we uh, read this, um, if you if you scratch your heads once or twice, that's, that's allowed, that's okay, um, but know that we need the Holy Spirit's guidance as we address these things in this text. We need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, um, and we need to come to the Scripture, which we believe is the holy, inerrant, inspired Word of God. We need to come to this, Willing to be the one who is judged, willing to be the one who is wrong, and not necessarily coming with the attitude that I've got to figure out what I can out of this, or I have to determine which of these verses I like or which ones I don't. Uh, we're coming to be taught. We're placing ourselves under the word of God to be corrected, to be guided, to be instructed. Uh, so let's read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, get into our, our study here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 10, Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe... And she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace." For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised, let him not not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters." Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called jesus we thank you that we are called we thank you that you have called us to be part of your family you have brought us in to a new kingdom um, where we have a, a new and better king uh, a father who loves us and we thank you that being about our father's business now being part of this family part of this kingdom Uh, that you have work for us to do, and you have callings for us to walk in, and we can be confident, Lord, that you are with us wherever we are called, that these good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to walk in are available to us to walk in, that we don't need to jump through many hoops before we're qualified to be Christians or anything like that. We come to you in the faith that saves us, uh, knowing uh, that you have called and that you will be faithful to complete what you've begun in us. Bless our understanding of this word. Bless your church today with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, In verse 24, at the end of the passage that I read, uh, it tells us the point Paul is making in all of this, um, all of these verses leading up to verse 24. He says, "Remain remain with God. Brethren, let each one remain with God. Hold on to that thought because that is really where we're headed. He's saying wherever you are, single or married, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, whatever, where you are, God is willing to meet with you where you are, and you do not have to start a new relationship or end a relationship in order to meet with the Lord. He is there to be found by you. Paul is responding to a letter the Corinthians wrote to him. We don't have that letter. Verse 1 makes it clear that this whole section on marriage, sex, Divorce and singleness is written while, uh, written because the church had questions about these issues. And what we can easily see from the rest of the letter and what we know about ancient Corinth, that the Corinthians were getting some things wrong. They were making a lot of mistakes, but credit where credit is due, they were having a lot of good conversations. They were having the right conversations. They were asking the right questions. It wasn't Paul who said, guys, newsflash, being a Christian is actually supposed to have an effect on your morality and your relationships. He didn't have to tell them this. It was the Corinthians who were saying, now that Christ has saved us, how is that supposed to affect our marriages and our relationships and our sexuality? They were asking the right questions. They were having the right conversations. In the first nine verses of this chapter, which we covered last week, Paul began answering some of their questions. The first question was about sex. And Paul tells them, this isn't for you if you are not married. But if you are married, then yes, it is good and right and holy, but only with the person you're married to. The Christian sexual ethic is wonderfully narrow. Sex is good and holy and right, but only in the context of marriage between wives and husbands. Paul elevates and encourages a kind of holy abstinence, he encourages a kind of celibacy and a singleness and all at the same time also elevating and encouraging holy matrimony with all, of, all that that entails. So he's addressing married people and single people. Now he's turning his attention again to some of the questions that the Corinthians had about marriage. And even though we don't have a copy of the letter they sent, we can get a pretty good idea of the questions they were asking because of the answers that Paul gives. The questions the Corinthians asked were probably something like this. Question number one, can I get a divorce? Paul's answer, no. Follow-up question, I already did. So, uh, can I now get married to someone else? Paul's answer, no. But wait, did I mention that the person I wanted to get a divorce is not a Christian? They're not a believer. They don't go to this church. So how about now? Paul's answer, no. No. Okay, wait, I didn't divorce them. They divorced me, and they this unbelieving spouse was unwilling to live with me. Do I now have to cling to the remnants of this marriage? Are you saying, Paul, that I have to stay single for the rest of my life or just wait for them to change their mind? Paul's answer again, no, that is actually not what I'm saying. Now, the Christian spouse will often assume an unnecessary respo- sense of Uh, responsibility, a burden, really, for the soul of their unbelieving spouse. They will ask, is it my job then to fix them? Is it my job to save them, to keep them in this marriage? Am I holding it all together? Paul's answer, no. Verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. But then to the hopeless one who might then say, well, it's okay, it's hopeless. My input isn't valued. I have no influence here, no authority here. My decisions don't have any effect. On this person that I have the misfortune of being married to. And again, to, Paul, to this, Paul will say to the hopeless, no. No, you don't know how much authority and influence you have. Now, we can even make some other guesses and assumptions as to what the Corinthians were thinking about. They could have been saying, and it seems like maybe some of them were, well, my spouse is an unbeliever. I'm a Christian. Our children, are they disqualified from being part of the church? Um, are my kids somehow less Christian because of their unbelieving parent? Paul's answer, no. And then from verse 17 to 24, Paul, he sort of broadens the scope of things, I think for the purpose of illustration. Instead of talking about marriage specifically, he teaches something about marriage by way of um, describing uh, other stations in life, of seeing your place in the world and the relationships you're in as part of your calling rather than merely incidental to your calling or opposed, perhaps, to your calling. In other words, he takes the marriage conversation where some were assuming that they could not be a good Christian while they were married, so they ought to get a divorce. Or people were assuming I can't be a good Christian while single, I better get married. That'll help me become more like Jesus, the single guy. You can see how many different directions you, can, you could go with this and where people could look to the other side of the fence and think, that's what I need to be holy. That's what I need to be a good Christian in this church. Paul expands this to the culture of each of his readers. Some people were saying, well, I can't be a good Christian while Jewish. And he's like, uh, yeah, you, you can. Hello, Paul, a Jew, nice to meet you. There's people saying, well, I can't be a good Christian without being more Jewish and Paul's like, read my bestseller. It's called Galatians. You know, this, this is the topic of circumcision that he deals with. Guess what Paul says to these ideas? He says, he says no. <laughs> he even addresses Christian slaves, and he encourages them to seek freedom, if, if that's expedient, if, if they can, but not to assume that their status as slaves in any way hinders their ability to be completely free in Christ. And the final verse in this, in that paragraph, verse 24 says, brethren, let each one remain with God, because that's where you really are, <laughs> in that state in which he was called. The point here, something we had introduced last week already, and it is this, you are a Christian where you are, and there is no second class status for those in a certain station in life. Single and Christian, good. Married and Christian, still good. You have an unbelieving spouse? You can still be a Christian, just fine. This does not affect your relationship with the Lord. You are called to remain with God. How about uh, unbelieving parents? Yeah, you're still good. How about you have a terrible job? I think slave would qualify for that. (laughs) There is no hindrance to your calling as a Christian. Now, this is all very reminiscent of Christ's conversation with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. You remember this, when Jesus tells Peter, after restoring him, He says, follow me. And Peter looks at John and says, what about him? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. And I think there were a lot of Corinthians who were making the mistake of looking at others in their city, in their church, in their culture and saying, that's the right way to be a Christian. I need to be like him. I need to be like them. And Paul, who preaches Christ and him crucified, says, no, you need to be like Jesus. Jesus. There were those in the Corinthian church, and we can easily find their spiritual descendants among us today, who would say, well, the most holy Christians are single, so I should be single, or the most holy Christians are are married, so I better do that. And the Jewish Christians would say the same thing about the Gentile believers and vice versa, and on and on it goes. Listen, be skeptical of the other side of the fence. Be skeptical of where the grass looks greener. Be skeptical of the things that you think you need in order to develop into the spiritually spiritually mature Christian that you know you are already called to be. It's not a change in station. It's a change in action. And that action is that of picking up your cross and following Jesus. Verse 19, he says circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision, it's nothing. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. That's something. There are lots of Crosses to pick up for a married person. And that's what Paul addresses first. He addresses the ones who believe that they have a reason to leave their spouse, the people who want out. Later on, and we'll talk about this more next week, there are plenty of crosses to pick up as a single person. And he, he kind of deals with that in more depth. There were marriages in Corinth that were hanging on by a thread. And we know this because if this wasn't the case, there would be no reason for Paul to reach out to those on the edge now and say, don't leave. Don't quit. Stay married. Stay where you are. And to their question, where am I? He answers in verse 24, remain with God. Stay with God where you are. Verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Remember that the Corinthian-specific situation had to do with this misunderstanding of spiritual rank, where they assumed that it was better or more holy to be one of two things, single or married. They were leaning towards the idea that it was more holy to be single. Um, Some were endorsing a kind of celibacy even within marriage, and Paul addressed that in the first part of the chapter. He says, it's a bad idea. Now, it seems that there were even some who were suggesting it would be a good idea to divorce so that they could be a better Christian. It's like, how am I ever going to be a monk if I'm still married? Paul says, no, no. (laughs) We live in a very different context than the Corinthians, and our problems are somewhat different, but the doctrine Paul teaches is timeless and just as much needed for a day as it was when it was first penned. The command Paul gives is still from the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, we've dealt with hard sayings in Scripture before, and we know that our tendency, each one of us, our tendency is to look for the loopholes. We know that we have a drive to find the exceptions, to figure out the workaround so that the commands that seem too harsh can be softened a little bit. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions to this rule. Jesus gives one of them. But it is an unhealthy tendency to look for the exceptions when the rule is what is being given so plainly and clearly. The exception is given by Jesus in his teachings on divorce in Matthew 19. The exception to the rule is sexual immorality. Divorce is allowed when the spouse breaks the covenant of marriage by adultery. That's the exception. Paul will give another exception when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse and is unwilling to dwell with them, unwilling to continue the marriage. Paul says that the believing spouse is then free. Those are the exceptions to the rule, but the rule is what is being given, and it's clear, and it's simple. And Paul gives it as a command, making it very clear that it's not his rule, it's the Lord's rule. Do not divorce your spouse. This view is the view the church has held since its inception. It will continue to be an extremely countercultural view as the world we live in grows in its distaste for tradition of all kinds and especially biblical sexual ethics. We make a big deal about you know, the, 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 the problems with the culture in the first century and even the Jewish laws of divorce around the time of Christ. One Jewish rabbi said that immorality was literally anything a wife did that the husband didn't like. Like anything, like literally anything, could be grounds for divorce in the Jewish culture in Jesus' day. That's crazy, right? And we all shake our heads and say, those silly people of the first century. No, we don't actually need any fault now. Like, how dare we shake our heads at that dumb rule? We don't need grounds for divorce at all. No fault divorce eliminates the need for the facade. You don't need a reason. But God's word still stands. His ways are unchanging, and divorce is still a sin. And yes, there are exceptions when it is necessary, but even in those situations, the apparent Um, The apparent need for a divorce is the result of sin. It's due to our fallen world. Last week, we mentioned how marriage is a mystery concerning Christ and the church. Any willful attack on the gospel will always be an offense to God. And that is what divorce is. Now, there were those in Paul's audience who had already gone through this. They had already followed this train of thought who had, for whatever reason, they thought appropriate at the time, left their spouse. It seems like he's talking about either divorce, which is official, legal, and that's the word used in verse 11, or perhaps just a separation that is, is not legal. It seems apparent from the advice given that it was not a situation of sexual immorality or another valid reason for separation or divorce, and to these people, or else be reconciled. In other words, the one who has divorced their spouse for reasons other than Sexual immorality or abandonment by the unbeliever is not free to remarry. Now this is, again, countercultural both inside and outside the church in most ages in which it has been read. Since we're comparing the church with the world, uh, this is a slight, a slight uh, tangent here, but let me correct a really false uh, statistic that's thrown around frequently when this topic comes up. I'm sure you've heard it. 50% of marriages end in divorce. And this is true for Christians and non-Christians alike. False. Uh, That is not true. Uh, Studies have shown over and over again that those who are consistent in actually practicing their faith have a much lower divorce rate. You know that the one who says they are a Christian and doesn't believe what the Bible says, doesn't read it, doesn't attend church, and truly doesn't think that their religion should have any effect on their worldview. Guess what? That's not a Christian, no matter how many times they say they are. That's a confused person, and you need to share the gospel with them. So again, divorce rates are lower, far lower in those regularly attending church than those who are not. But the rates are still too high. It's very clear that the church has unfortunately followed the world's thinking in a variety of issues when it comes to marriage and sexuality, and this is one of them. Remarriage after an illegitimate divorce, Jesus calls adultery. Paul says here... Don't do it. Most people today say it's not a big deal. I'm sure they didn't mean it. Apparently, it was a big deal. I lean towards believing that they meant it. Now, I need to be clear about something else. Divorce is real, and marriage is real. What do I mean by that? I mean this. If you are divorced, you are actually divorced. There are some who will say, well, it wasn't biblical, so you're not really divorced in God's eyes. Yeah, you are. Divorce is a real thing. You did. If you did this in sin, take heart. Jesus forgive sins. He justifies the ungodly. In the same way, if a person gets divorced without biblical grounds and then gets remarried, which both Jesus and Paul forbid, this does not mean you are somehow not really married. Yeah, you are. You cannot say that you're somehow not married in God's eyes. No, you really are divorced and you really are now married. Even if that marriage was entered into against the principles of scripture, marriage is real. You might have some sin to repent of, And if there was sin that brought you to that spot, take heart. Jesus forgives sins. But again, I don't want to dwell more on the exceptions than the rule that is being clearly presented. I don't want to to in any way soften the point that Paul is clearly trying to make. It's not our job to avoid what the scripture teaches by artfully inserting other scriptures into the conversation at opportune moments. We have to leave the teeth in the passages that sting. And the blunt force that Paul is hitting us with is this. Marriage is permanent. That's it. That's the point. And to the ones who thought their marriage was somehow in the way of their spiritual maturity, Paul says, if you are currently married, you can be confident that it is the will of God for you to be married. And this is in no way opposed to the will of God, which is your sanctification. Now, these verses are written specifically to Christian couples in the church. This is God's law for God's people where husband and wife are baptized believers in the church, submitting to the authority of the church. But there were also those in the church who were not God's people. And some of the Corinthian Christians were married to those guys. (laughs) So verse 11, when he says, but to the rest I say, he's shifting now from speaking to believing couples who who are considering divorce to believers who are married to unbelievers. Verse 12 and 13, he says, but to the rest... I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now what is this about I, not the Lord? That's confusing, right? Didn't I say this was confusing? Since we believe that this is the word of God, that Paul's writings here are inspired, what are we to make of this? Of course, not every word of Scripture is true in the same way as every word of scripture. For example, Job's wife, your favorite, right? Curse God and die. Great memory verse. We don't take that as good <laughs> doctrine, right? It's true that she said it, it's in the scripture, but you don't take every word in the same way as other scriptures. So when Paul says this is me not God, we do we just take that as an opinion and not law? I don't think so. I think what Paul is saying is this. In verse 10 he said this is what I say, but it's not just me. It's the Lord. He's not somehow elevating his own opinion to say, okay, guys, I've got a real Holy Spirit moment coming on. So if you just forget the rest, write this part down. It's important. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying the laws about divorce. Oh, Jesus already uh, talked about that. Like, I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said. That is probably the safest way to have this conversation. He says, I'm not saying this. The Lord said this. Jesus taught about divorce. So now when he's saying, listen, the details about what to do in the case of an unbelieving spouse, this is my interpretation of God's word, not a re-proclamation of what Jesus already said. Does that make sense? Jesus doesn't specifically address this situation in the Gospels. As far as we know, he never addressed it to any of his disciples. So Paul's teaching on it is an exposition of doctrine, not just restating a doctrine. Now for us, we, along with the entire church since it first received 1 Corinthians, we have accepted Paul's interpretation of doctrine, as it is recorded in his letters, as inspired scripture. All that to say, these scriptures are just as much scripture as the Gospels. And what Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that this rule of marriage applies even if one member is not a believer. Why? Because again, marriage is real. It's a real thing. It's not make-believe. Your spouse's spiritual state does not affect the validity or value of the covenant that you are in with them and he gives the believer a great deal of hope here he says that you are having a purifying and preservative effect on your home even though your spouse may not agree with your beliefs verse 14 for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband otherwise your children would be clean but now would be unclean excuse me but now they are holy Another confusing part, right? This is not talking about salvation in the eternal sense, the language of being sanctified, unclean, holy. These are words that have have such uh, Christianese connotations. It's hard to imagine them meaning anything but being saved from hell, but throughout Scripture, they can have much more practical meaning, and that's how Paul is using them here. He's talking about morality, about cultural preservation of the family. Uh, in Philippians 2, verse 15, Paul says we should become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In Corinthians, Paul is talking to the lights. He says you're a light in your family. You're a light in your marriage. He's also talking about a transfer from what he calls a crooked and perverse generation. Corinth was a crooked and perverse generation. It was an awful place. And Paul is saying to the married Christian, maybe the only believer in their home, he's saying, you have illuminative power and authority in your home to save the culture of your home. And later he'll say, you don't know whether or not this ministry will also result eventually in the salvation of the soul of your spouse. Verse 15 and 16, he says, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? Verse 16 shows the value of this extremely difficult ministry that a husband or wife has when they are married to an unbeliever. They may have a hand in the eternal salvation of the soul that they are in covenant with. Peter will write to wives specifically in this situation. In 1 Peter 3, 1, he says that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. There is hope. And, to use the language Paul uses in this passage, there is a calling, a ministry, that is specific for people in this situation. And while they have influence and they can encourage, be encouraged that their work is not in vain, they do not have the final burden of ultimate responsibility. And this also can be extremely freeing for the one who may think, if I were just more like Jesus, surely my spouse would be saved. Or you could extend from spouse to unsaved family in any direction, right? If I was better, then they would be Christian. Yeah, sure, talk to Judas about that, right? He had good friends. If, if you uh, take that kind of burden on yourself, you will live in a place of false condemnation that doesn't belong in your life. And so Paul, to that person who says I'm just holding it together. They don't even want to be married to me anymore. They only but I value marriage so I'm going to I'm going to white knuckle it. And Paul says, "No." He's saying a lot of that today, huh? If that person doesn't want to be married to a Christian, that's on them and to the abandoned. He says, "You're not under bondage. You're free." His actual words are, "A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace." And it's this idea of peace that really brings us back to the overarching theme of this chapter. Paul will write elsewhere, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that's what he's getting at here. Whatever you are called to, wherever you were when you were called, whatever state you are in uh, now as you're hearing the call of the gospel, when you became a Christian, you can be confident that God is interested in restoration and peace and sanctification and preservation. And no matter what the state of your relationships are today, you can be confident that the God who raises the dead is capable of bringing glory to himself through those relationships. In verses 17 through 24, it's kind of a long section here, Paul gives the principle behind the arguments by broadening the scope of the conversation. So I'm just going to read it again from verse 17. He says, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Paul wrote about singleness as something that was given by God in verse 7. The single person can accept their state as something God intends to use, and he is more than capable of using singleness and a person who is single— For his purposes. If you are married, you can acknowledge that marriage is a gift and that God intends to use your marriage and your state in that marriage for his glory. Use it for the glory of God. Here in verse 17, Paul's encouragement is this accept the state you are in as something that has come by the will of God who ordains all things, and, and by the God who wastes nothing. If you're singer, single, there will be times you are discontent in your singleness. And if you are married, there will be times when you will be discontent in your marriedness. But both the single and the married are to acknowledge that their state was given to them in this time from the Lord for a purpose. And it is in this state that we are called to walk. Now, this is obvious and I know I'm restating things here, but every single Christian is called to be a Christian for as long as they are single and every married Christian is called to be a Christian as a married person until death. Every single Christian is called to be a Christian as a single person until they die or get married. Every married person is called to be a married Christian until they're dead. That's it. Now, to get this point across, Paul brings up these two other situations, being circumcised and being enslaved. Dang, Paul, way to keep it light and breezy. Um, I believe believe he's addressing these things by way of comparison, still trying to teach something about marriage, because he's going to return to the issue of marriage and celibacy in verse 25, and continues talking about marriage and singleness all the way to the end of the chapter. So that's still the topic. And here in the middle, he's just saying, it's kind of like this, right? Right? It's just like the church does not somehow recommend a Jew to become uncircumcised. And just like the church did not start a slave's revolt and encourage all Christian slaves in the Roman Empire to rebel. In the same way, he is saying that whether you are single or whether you're married, the church puts no burden on you to change that. Either way, this is the place where you can and should remain with God. This is essential, and it is central to the bigger idea. Verse 23 and 24 again, Paul says, "...you were bought at a price." He's already told them this in chapter 6, and in verse 24, he says, Let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. What's it going to take to make you holy? What is it going to take to bring you to the place where you recognize the hand of Christ in your life? There will be a temptation in every stage of life to say, Well, it's a change of position, location, relationship status, that's the thing I need. The single person who may feel isolated may think if I had a godly spouse, then I would be more godly. And the married person who knows better will say, if I didn't have this person in my life, I'm sure I'd have more time to pray and to serve. I'd have a lot less sins to repent of. Uh, the, The person who is married to an unbeliever will say, if only my husband or wife was more interested in spiritual things, well, then, then I would see in my life that, that exponential growth in the Lord. If my husband or wife was interested in spiritual things and they would go to church with me, then I could serve the Lord. And we don't have slavery the way they, it was practiced in the Roman world, but perhaps a modern equivalent, a loose equivalent, might be the plenty of people who will believe the lie that their job is somehow keeping them from Christian maturity. That's not true. In whatever state you have been called, this is the place where the Lord wants to meet you, use you, and live his life through you. The place you are in, in your marriage, in your work, by yourself, in whatever longing or discontent you find yourself in, this is the place where Paul says, remain with God. He is where you are. Now, this is a chapter that's all about excuses. It's a chapter that corrects a kind of Christian pessimism, a spiritual covetousness that thinks, if things were different, then I'd be better. But it's also a chapter that gives a tremendous amount of hope to the one who thinks that intimacy with the Lord is somehow beyond them, that they've missed it, that they made decisions in their life that have now cut off their access to remain with God. And Paul says, no. To the one who thinks that the Lord is bound by your circumstances, to the couple who thinks, could God really move in our marriage, the Lord says yes. To the couple in trouble who hesitantly asks, is there any hope for us, the Lord says yes. To the wife of the unbelieving husband, who you have been called to ministry and where you are right now is your mission field. You have been called by Jesus to follow him, even with a kind of disregard of your surroundings, while at the same time having tremendous confidence in your ability to affect those surroundings with the gospel. Jesus offers hope to each one in whatever state they are in. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the A R is where you can meet with God. To each one saying, is there hope for me? Jesus says, yes. Come unto me, all you who are Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in the work that you do in our lives and our families and our marriages in this church. We thank you uh, that you are so flexible and so capable of using people in every state of life and every station of life. We pray that we, your people, your children, would be faithful in the areas that we have been called to. Lord, bless this church. Um, Bless the marriages in this church. Bless our our hearts that uh, lean towards covetousness and pessimism. Give us that hope of rest, that resounding yes, where we know we have been called to holiness and you are faithful to complete the good work you've begun in us. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy. Hey guys, you are you are sent out, of course, to make disciples of all nations. And on your way, you can also register to vote outside. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Uh, outside the church, there's a table set up. So be on your way. You're sent.